everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have a recently retired professor, Marvin Salman. Welcome to our show. David, it's a pleasure to be here. So, some of your recent work has been on uh, wrongful convictions. I'm really interested to kind of learn about how you got into that in the first place and what you've kind of learned about that. Okay. Um, in the minute before we started recording, uh, I told you, first of all, that I want to compliment uh, the uh, the Vanguard, the Davis Vanguard, and um, saying I, I, I felt a little bad that I didn't know about it. Uh, until I was invited uh, to be to be on your podcast, uh, I looked over the website and I think it's absolutely terrific. I think focusing in on problems in one county, which is your 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 narrow focus, and then broadening it to to larger problems, is is really important because we don't have one criminal justice system in the U.S. We don't even have fifty. As Dan Medwed suggested, I listened to his podcast a couple of days ago. We've got three thousand plus because each county has a different system with its own with its own weirdness. Now, how did I get involved? Let me tell you just a couple of things about my background. I'm old. I'm really old. Uh, I'm eighty one. Um, I'm a New Yorker, uh, immigrant folks, um, a lower middle class store owner. Uh, uh, folks luck, lucky enough to get out of Europe uh, as Jews after World War II started. So we're one of the few to actually get visas and, and we lost some people in the Holocaust. Um, so I'm, a, I'm sort of a classic Eastern liberal, uh, graduated from high school, went to college, got a law degree at, at Brooklyn Law School and I was on my way to practice law when the Vietnam War intervened, uh, my wife and I, who I had met in law school, had taken our Peace Corps exams, passed, and we ended up uh, teaching at a law faculty in Northern Nigeria. And the, the way I got into criminal justice, for starters, was that I was simply assigned to teach criminal law and criminal procedure of Northern Nigeria. And I became really interested in it. Not only did I teach, I did a little bit of research, and when I came back, I entered the School of Criminal Justice at Albany. It was, you know, the nowadays there are hundreds and hundreds of criminal justice programs around the United States. There weren't any in those days. 
So I became an academic and I ended up getting a PhD teaching at Michigan State in the 70s and at Wayne State in Detroit since then. So you want to know how I became interested in wrongful convictions. Um, <clears throat> I my, my interest when I was first studying uh, criminal justice on my own, um, teaching law in Nigeria was in sentencing. I've read some stuff on it in the library. I found it interesting. Uh, I made that my doctoral dissertation. And <clears throat> uh, when I was in Michigan, um, after about a decade there, I was involved in the, um, the uh, Office of the State Court Administrator, and they tapped me to direct a project on sentencing guidelines. So uh, looking back on, on, my, on my long career, uh, I was uh, the director and then the co-director of the Michigan Sentencing Guidelines Project. Then a couple of years later, I took a position for a very brief time in New York State as the director of their committee on sentencing guidelines. And as I was doing that, I had certain ideas and ideals and looking back saying, well, that was right as the as the tough on crime era was gearing up, but we didn't know it at the time. And and we just knew that prisons were becoming filled up and corrections departments were going crazy. And we didn't have a, com a complete view of that. And it's only in the recent years as the scholarship has looked back on it, we, we you know, so I have this sense that what I was doing was working on a failed mission with partial information. I didn't know exactly what was going on, but it wasn't me alone. A lot of really smart people were, were feeling the effects of, of the increase in the numbers of prisoners, but not getting a good handle on it. And as we look back on it, the handle is as deals as much with political uh, issues and and structural racism as anything else. So, so when I when I finished my gig at, at, at in the New York Sentencing Guidelines Commission, which was a failure, it, it completely collapsed. They they never adopted guidelines. I was sort of burned out with sentencing, and I. I, my teaching was mostly on criminal procedure. I was writing a textbook. And I would say intellectually, I was kind of floating. But over the years, I had read uh, a couple of books detailing wrongful convictions, and I was really impressed by them. I was aware of a scholarship that's important to wrongful conviction scholars, innocent scholars, but you know, pretty obscure to the larger community by the late Ron Huff, just a wonderful man, passed away recently. He was uh, the, uh, the, the chair, the dean of the um, uh, crime and justice program at UC Irvine. Um, and, 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 and he, um, and um, a, a, at first a grad student at the time, had done some of the early work in the 80s before anybody believed that wrongful convictions really occurred. Um, and I was aware of that. And I said, this is really kind of interesting. So in the back of my mind, I'm saying, are there really thousands of wrongfully convicted people every year? And then for, for a year or two, I'd say, yeah, wow, that's really a problem. Then I'd say, nah, it can't be. And, and that, was the, that was the attitude of, of most people in society. Well, in 2000, I, I read the, the, the really important book by, uh, by Barry Sheck and... and, and uh, <clears throat> 
Newfeld and, and Jim Dwyer, Actual Innocence. And that really sort of lit me up. And as a, as a legal scholar, as well as, you know, a criminologist or criminal justice scholar, you know, I read a lot of legal, legal journals and stuff on wrongful conviction is, is appearing in the law review articles, right? <laughs> Not exactly most people's bedside reading. So I, it, so I began to really see that stuff is going on, and um, I'm not sure how powerfully I was affected by Governor Ryan's <clears throat> um, a commutation of like about 180 death sentences in uh, in Illinois, motivated by no, that was actually yeah yeah it was about 2003, but in 2003 I said this issue was important enough so that I wanted to teach a seminar on it. I was acting chair at the time. I could teach anything I wanted. So I created a seminar on wrongful conviction, and I've taught it pretty steadily ever since. So you said that you told me that you were asked by a family to attend the sentencing hearing of a man who was sentenced to, was it 180 years or? 378 years. 378 years. And it dawned on you at first you were skeptical, and then it dawned on you that the guy was really innocent. Yeah. So after teaching for a year or so, uh, I learned that the there was something called the Innocence Network, and that they they had annual meetings. And I I I called actually I called John Gould, who's uh, now the director of the of the uh, justice program at. I, th I think he's at UC Irvine. If, um, and because he was more involved and I said, you know, would it be okay to show up? And he said, yeah. Well, I attended their annual meeting in Washington, DC. And I, I, I had this strange sense that I was like an anthropologist that, that discovered a tribe that nobody knew about. And I just was so drawn to the issues. Um, they used a device that was first created um, by um, uh, 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 Marshall and, and, and uh, uh, in 1998, I believe. I, I, never, I never attended and I wasn't aware of it, but there was this very, very large uh, death penalty reform uh, conference in, in, in Chicago. And uh, they they asked exonerees, including a, a guy here in uh, Michigan who's a who's a friend of mine, Ron Kiney, uh, who was uh, exonerated from death row in in New Mexico. Uh, uh, Ron uh, wrote an essay for a, a book that I that I edited, so I really got into his case, um, where. You know, each each exoneree would stand up and say, "My name is Ron Kiney. Uh, if New Mexico had its way, I'd be dead now. You know, I'm actually innocent of this of this murder." So that really sort of lit a fire on me. And um, in order to keep track of students' term papers, I started keeping track of all the literature on wrongful conviction and. And, you know, before retirement, uh, I'm still writing on wrongful conviction. I've written law review articles, some empirical stuff with colleagues. Uh, I co-edited a book on, on innocence reform. And it is just a vitally important topic. And I, I'd be happy to discuss that. But if you want to go back to 
my experiences of sort of living through the the tough on crime era, sort of like you know the, the the frog in the pot where the temperature is 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 being turned up. At first, you don't really notice what the problem is, and by the time by the time you understand it, it's too late. You're cooked. Um, I want to we'll go there in a second, but um, you know one of the things that you know, at least from my experience, you mentioned, you know, the 378 year case. What what happened for me, at least, was, okay, you look at this case, and you're like, okay, now I'm convinced that this guy is innocent, what went wrong? And then all of a sudden, you start seeing all of these problems that are not just apparent in this case, but across the board. And so I've always felt like, the innocence movement, um, the actual, you know, uh, Shaq and Neufeld and, and taking DNA evidence and, and showing that for sure they got the wrong guy. Like, you know, you could look back in the 30s and there's work on wrongful convictions, but, you know, it didn't really take off until you could actually prove it. And then we're like, well, what's wrong with the system? And then all of a sudden, you know, oh, forensic science has all these problems and, uh, uh, you know, eyewitnesses are unreliable and and uh, false confessions occur. And, and so I always felt like this is like the window into the need for criminal justice reform. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, um, I tell people that as a as a criminal justice professor who's not only a critic but wants to work to improve the system uh that was exactly my sense when i when i first really got my teeth into into uh the issue of wrongful convictions one sort of uh, sustaining cultural factor that supported the tough on crime era was was the the um, deep belief among not only the prosecutors and the prosecutorially oriented judges, but among you know many defense lawyers that that the criminal justice system made very few mistakes. Uh, there is a a really enlightening uh, essay in in Dan Medwed's 2017 anthology by. Uh, I, I think it's, I'm going to, I've got too many names in my head, I'm going to forget it, but by a guy who was a leader in the, in the death penalty reform movement, leading, leading lawyer, I can pull it off the shelf and get the name. And he wrote that as he was fighting to abolish the death penalty by law, by, by court action in the 60s and 70s and 80s, it never occurred to him that wrongful conviction was a really serious problem. So, yeah. Uh, and 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 you know this this notion early on that are there a lot are there not a lot well uh, one of the areas that I've studied was the the estimates of how many how many wrongful convictions we have now I can save that save that for another point needless to say there are quite a few and <clears throat> um, what occurred to me was that. The judges and the prosecutors, who in one article I once described as the grandees of criminal justice, you know, they're just these powerful people. They're 
completely convinced that they're right and and that you know defense lawyers will make outrageous claims for people as they often do uh um uh, you, you you might see that uh, uh, uh there are there are claims being made in the news right now for a person who was once known as um defendant number one in a uh, in a new york ca case uh so some pretty outrageous claims might be made for people who are uh, being indicted for crimes, uh, and that's and that's part of the toolkit of of defense lawyers. But they completely dismiss the notion that there really are a lot of wrongfully convicted people. The kind of sympathy that everyone, liberal conservative, would have for somebody who was genuinely innocent, factually innocent, unconnected to a case, is a very powerful emotion. And the kind of pathos that it creates to seem to me could be a wedge to open up uh, you know, the light, as you explained, into all of the different factors that, that generate wrongful convictions. So it's, it's, it's not just a, 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 a narrowly focused issue. It has the potential to help to improve many, many aspects of criminal justice. So now going back to the 70s, you know, what what do you see as kind of, you know, as you look back on maybe your career, you know, some of the failures of uh, understanding the ramifications of those sentencing guidelines? Because it, it seemed like, you know, when when, when they shifted the system, uh, you know, there there were actually, you know, legitimate reasons to go away from, say, indeterminate sentencing. You know, you used to have cases, um, you know, there's some famous cases where guys got one year to life, um, which uh, for relatively minor cases, um, you know, thinking of George Jackson, for example, um, you know, of, uh, you know, um, this, at, at San Quentin and, and, and whatnot. But, uh, you know, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it certainly occupied me for, for a good part of my, my academic, my academic career. Um, what I want to get across is, uh, you, you know, looking back for now to that era, uh, given all that's been written and all, all that we now know about it, it looks different. I'm, I'm trying to say, put yourself in the shoes. You know, you're a, you're a, a young guy in his 20s. You, you know, you're well-educated. Uh, it's 1972. And, and, you know, what do you really know? And, and I, what I would like to get across to people who watch this is that it was, it was kind of a different world. Um, it's not just what we know about sentencing, it's what's going on in the larger world. Um, when, when, I, when I was a kid, Jim Crow was legal. I mean, I, mean, it, uh, I, I was a teenager when Brown versus the Board was decided, you know, as a young liberalish kind of kid in, in New York or New York suburb, it seemed like a really great idea. I had no idea the depth of racial animosity and structural racism in the U.S. I mean, just, just uh, you know, uh, as I said, my folks were immigrants, so you know, they they didn't have the sort of deep sense of what what American society was like. 
Um, when I went to law school, there were very few women in law school. My wife was one of something like 10 out of a very large graduating class. The feminist revolution hadn't started yet. Um, cops would arrest people for, for homosexual behavior if they could find it. Uh, it just just a, a very, very, very different world. And part of that world was within criminal justice was this notion that the proper goal of corrections was corrections, was rehabilitation. And there was a critique, as you mentioned, of discretion that appealed both to, to liberals and, and, and uh, uh, today, I guess we'd say progressives, but people way on the left. And it also appealed to, to rather conservative uh, pro-punishment uh, kinds of folks. And um, so I, I remember in grad school, I was sort of part of that critique. I was reading studies that showed that um, most rehabilitation programs didn't work all that well. And then, and then this notion arose that nothing works, uh, Martinson's famous article, which was, which was a terrible article because some things do work. And what do we mean by work? Punishment and, and penal programs are not like medicine, although um, one uh, well-known well criminal justice scholar once tried to say that, that uh, punishment is, is, like, is like, you know, a pill. It, it, but, but people can't be helped. Most of the folks who get involved with problems in the law do need some accountability, do need some correction. Um, they need help more than they need anything like harsh punishment. And, and as, as we've learned over time, uh, our, our penal systems are, are extremely harsh. A report just came out uh, a day or so ago about the extent of solitary confinement in the US. And it, it's hideous. As far as I'm concerned, it's torture. The US is torturing hundreds of thousands of people by excessive solitary confinement. So there was a certain level of naivete. So I, I got involved in sentencing. One of my professors, Leslie Wilkins, had developed parole guidelines, which were a sensible notion of trying to cut down the disparity between, let's say, nine or 10 parole uh, uh, um, officers who decided parole release. And you could do that by looking at their decisions and trying to find a mean. And that work was very successful and parole guidelines were adopted in, in the US system and uh, in the federal system and in some state systems. But then the idea developed of applying them to the, to the states. And when you, when you jumped from trying to find a norm for nine or 10 uh, deciders to judges all across the state in different counties with different, with different, uh, different rules, I mean, with your, when you were talking to Dan Medwed the other day, uh, you know he he was surprised at how how uh, decisions can differ so much from one county to another. Um, you were kind of in the in the role of of really creating creating policy and and creating policy based on the norms of the of the guidelines commission. So yeah, I did the work in, in, in Michigan. Uh, it was an, an interesting experience. I met with mid-level managers in the correctional system. 
people representing law enforcement, prosecution. And we, we worked in a low-key way. We actually did a two-year research study trying to find norms of sentencing in Michigan. Came up with sets of guidelines that focused on each crime level. They were published and they're still now part of Michigan sentencing system. And most lawyers say they think it's useful, that it gives them some, some guidance. But it, it wasn't the kind of uh, reform, I think, that made massive changes in the material well-being of prisoners, uh, of people uh, you know, in, in the criminal and, and, and correctional system, in the criminal legal system. Uh, for that, you, you need other, other kinds of programs. When I went to New York, it was a totally different thing. There, the commission was established by legislation. Uh, it had a history of several prior commissions that were talking about guidelines. Unlike a, a, a more um, uh, mid-level professionals, people dealing with each other on a reasonably quiet level, the people on the commission were appointed by the highest level politicians in the state, the governor, both houses of the legislature. It was a highly politicized um, process. Uh, what happened get, got reported in the papers and the, the sharp divisions between people in corrections who were going crazy as, as more and more prisoners were loading up, were, were filling up their beds and they couldn't keep up with it, who wanted some system that would reduce the number of prisoners coming in and the hardline judges and, and one of the things I learned on that commission was that uh, 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 Robert Morgenthau, the, uh, the very famous district attorney of Manhattan, was on it. And, you know, I, from the distance from Michigan, he looked like this great liberal. He opposed the death penalty. But boy, when it came to that commission, he was standing fast for, for tough standards, supporting. You know, he, he spoke for every prosecutor in New York, and his power just about outweighed everybody. So it was, a, it was a complete power play. And at the end, um, uh, I felt personally burned out by that whole process and uh, it just didn't work. But I'm not sure it would have made that much of a difference because what really was driving things was the Rockefeller drug laws. And Rockefeller, who had been this great liberal just three years before and created this, uh, really put money into, into uh, uh, correctional treatment uh, when he, figured that in order to get elected president of the United States, uh, as the Republican Party was starting to become uh, uh, tougher, he, he decided he had to become tough on crime and push the Rockefeller drug laws, which were a total disaster. So, and, you know, very important in, in kicking off the, the, the tough on crime, the, the escalation of prisoners from about 180,000 in the early 70s to uh, if you count both jails and prisons, over 2 million today, and the highest rate in the Western world, you know all of that. So, you know, I look back on it and I say, gosh, what a fool. I, I actually, uh, I sort of got suckered into putting a little bit of polish on what was really a, 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 a bad system. Um, but, you know, there were, there were other people. There's a, um, uh, uh, I think one of the most important books that everybody knows about is Michelle Alexander's New Jim Crow. 
Go back to the introduction. She said when she started working on that as a civil rights attorney, people said, well, don't bother about criminal justice. That's not really important. What's really important is housing and, 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 and mortgages and jobs. And But yeah, criminal justice was was one of the drivers of, of that shift to the right in America. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I was really surprised um, when I read a book on Attica um, and, and the revolt uh, from the early 70s, how, how much and how bad of a role uh, Nelson Rockefeller played in creating that disaster <laughs> and then covering it up. Um, and then, and, and you're right, I mean, you know, this was a guy that was up in front of a lot of Democrats in the early 60s on civil rights. And, um, you know, here he is laying the groundwork for, you know, kind of the regression of civil rights, um, you know, after the 70s. The Attica uprising occurred one, just as I took my first job, right, as a, uh, I was an assistant professor. We loaded a U-Haul and we drove from New York to Michigan. And just as I got there, that happened. And I, it was it was uh, obviously a really sickening situation. One of my classmates at the School of Criminal Justice, and there were students in the master's program who were not going to go on to a PhD, and they were New York City cops and state troopers. He was a state trooper, and I met him a few years later. He later went on to have an illustrious career. As a state trooper, he told me he was he was filming the the other troopers who were shooting into the yard, and he was shaken up by that whole thing. Uh, it was it was ghastly. Yeah, um, uh, trying to re remember her name. The the terrific book by a University of Michigan uh, historian. Uh, she's, I, I blocked I'm on it too, and I interviewed her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Um, but so so what you have with Attica is the myth-making, right? The, 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 the demonization of criminals. You know, I don't think we should. There was in the 60s, you know, on the, on the far left, um, um, you know, to some degree, um, uh, there was the opposite of demonization. Um, you know, some criminals, you know, some people commit serious harms. Um, some are career criminals. Some are people who do one bad thing in their lives. Uh, so I, I don't think we, we should necessarily put anyone on a, on a pedestal. But the demonization of, of people who are in prison uh, the the inherent racism uh, in our society that underlies that, and then that that's used as as a way to keep pushing the system in a very negative uh, negative direction. Yeah. I one thing I was wondering, and and this is kind of an overall thought, you know, is. Are you surprised at the level of kind of public fear of crime? Because that seems to be driving a lot of this is that people are mortified of becoming a victim of crime. And so it drives all these draconian policies and and all sorts of other things, you know, and uh, in, including residential, uh, you know, uh, living patterns and things like that. 
So as an academic, I tend to answer questions through books rather than through experience. But, um, you know, California has a wealth of, of absolutely brilliant people. Um, to name one, um, I think I'd say the, the answer is in the title to Dan Simon's book. Dan is a uh, professor at Berkeley. Um, governing through crime. Um, I mean, uh, serious crime is serious. It, it, it needs to be dealt with. Um, people need to be uh, apprehended if they've committed crimes. Uh, they need to, to be held accountable in reasonable ways. Uh, um, uh, society should be organized in a way to reduce as much as possible those, those kinds of crimes. All of that is very rational. But we have to remember that that crimes do do spark uh, a fear, but they also spark anger, and and uh, I think everybody um, will be angry at some crimes. So uh, it's not a conservative liberal thing. Uh, I think uh, uh, liberals are are very angry about crimes that were committed. Oh, let's say uh, in the the government areas of Washington, D.C. on, uh, what was that, January 6th, uh, 2021. Um, yeah, I'm really angry uh, and, and fearful for the consequences of those crimes. So, um, <clears throat> but as we know, it's um, it's always been a policy of, of, of governments to, to gin up that fear, to, to uh, make it, um, uh, to heighten it for their own political purposes. So that's that's Dan's Dan's title. Governing crime, you know, mayors govern crime. They have to find budgets for their police. They have to determine whether or not they're going to be cutting back a bit on the police budget and expanding uh, social policies on the streets uh, that might reduce crime. It's it's a it's a difficult, challenging experience. Governing through crime is the state legislators or the governors uh, taking a bullhorn and screaming about crime in order to scare people in the kinds of comfortable suburbs that I live in about crime supposedly happening there. By the way, I live in a nice, comfortable suburb. I think every suburb in America should be seen as a cr high crime district, but only if we knew the tax returns of everyone <laughs> in the community. There probably is the same percentage of, say, tax cheating um, uh, you know, among people in the suburbs as, as there would be crime among hardworking, almost all honest people living in so-called high crime areas and in, 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 in poor areas. So, uh, but add to that, while that's true in every country, uh, it's doubled in the US because we, we add you know, because now we're we're really familiar with it. This notion that um, simply being a black male, you know, targets you as a potential violent criminal in the in the eyes of some some people, and that still hasn't gone away. Uh, I I read some articles uh, that were recently written by criminal justice professors who were African American, and the men. Uh, the South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, is that, did I get his name right? Yep. Who just announced for president, said he himself has been pulled over many times. So, uh, and and the horror of it was, was that while 
up until just a few years ago, at least uh, trying to exacerbate those those emotions, those those prejudices, was sort of not sort of considered proper in public. Uh, with with the political action of President Trump, it's it, it it's become okay to to say that or or to hint that in some circles, and that's a criminal justice problem as well as a social problem. All right. Well, we're almost out of time. Any other kind of thoughts or reflections that you have? Um. <laughs> well, I could. Uh, you know, any professor could go on forever. So, so it's it's better. It's than a that. dangerous question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if we had a beer and we were in a in a tavern, I'm I'm sure I can I can go on at some length. I think I've said enough. Um, but um, you know, I do I do hope to uh, now that I have you know, some some time uh, to keep writing this uh, this column. If uh, people are interested. Uh, the uh, it's easy enough to find the proving innocence is uh, is um, you know it's it's not high powered like like the innocence project in New York City or uh, uh, some of the others but I'll I'll be writing columns about what what scholars in psychology and law and forensic science and criminology have written about wrongful conviction so I want to I want to just keep talking about it. I just want to thank you for finding me <laughs> so and and giving me a chance to uh to express some some views and well, good luck you. with your work thank you so much for coming on and uh sharing some of your experience uh really good to have kind of a systemic overview of the whole system and where we came from this has been everyday injustice i'm your host david greenwald join us again next time for more tales for the from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.